Crude Audacity Podcast. listening to the crude audacity podcast the podcast that talks shop shit and all things strategy with oil patch influencers as you know it has been a hell of a time lately and last week was nothing short of misery so hopefully you all realize that hope is not a development plan today i am joined by malcolm pitts con wyatt and of course elio dean the oil field needs a new strategy and a new angle you want american independence and oil field security well control the tap Control Global Conventional Production. Thank you all for being here. I really appreciate you taking the time. So, I have a lot of questions for you. We're going to jump right into it. Malcolm Khan, you both survived the oil embargo. You have seen the mayhem, the pivots, the results of it. So, can you start us off by taking us back? What was that like? Where would you go from? This was not our first oil war not going to be our last. So sort of give us y'all's perspective on the patch. Well, the oil embargo actually started in the, in the late 70s. And Con and I both joined uh, the oil industry in 1980. So we actually got employment because of the oil embargo <laughs> into the oil industry. And at that time, the price of crude oil was continually increasing. And when we started in 1980, the price of crude oil, and I don't remember exactly was about $40 a barrel, and it was certain that within two years it was to be well over 100 Well, I saw a news article that said oil went from $3 to 12 and everyone was rejoicing. Well, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that, that happened during that time is that there was um, restrictions on um, oil price by the U.S. government. You had tiered oil, okay. which affected what you could sell the price for. And the oil embargo eventually got rid of that restriction. Okay, so how so? Uh, in that the, we wanted to make the U.S. producer be able to sell their crude oil at an equivalent price to what the world was offering okay. as an incentive to produce oil in the United States. Uh, but, it, but it also, during that time, too, for enhanced oil recovery, there was a very good program that was put together by the Department of Energy called the Tertiary Incentives Program okay. that ended up uh, stimulating a lot of field projects as well as a lot of good technological development by universities, or major oil companies, and as well as consultants and uh, smaller oil companies. What prompted the government to step in and actually start tiering that pricing and providing those incentives for different levels of development? I think the main reason, and I don't know for sure because I don't remember, um, I think the reason they did that was to uh, try and stimulate production domestically. Okay, just to gear it up. By allowing all crude oil to be sold at world prices. And, for example, the tertiary incentives program that I talked about, the way that they funded that is they would have uh, oil companies that had different tiered, and you had three different tiers, and then you had world price, tier one being the, the lowest uh, price mm-hmm. and so forth. And if you had tier oil that had a restricted price on it, you could sell that oil at world price, and the difference between the tiered price and the um, world price that you got was, well, you funded your tertiary incentive project. Okay. And so that was a way to, one, allow the... Uh, operator to try and enhance production beyond what they were doing at the time mm-hmm. by whatever technology they chose was appropriate. How uh, were they choosing what was appropriate? Well, that, that was one of the big flaws in the tertiary <laughs> incentives program. In the way that the government decided that you were eligible to do that is you multiplied the concentration of your injectant times the volume that you injected, and if you exceeded a certain number, mm-hmm. then you got to change the price of what you were able to sell your crude. That so seems like a good loophole. It is, because <laughs> what that meant is if you just barely got over that number, 
and it was wasn't a technically viable techno or technique for your reservoir, you still got to increase the price of your crude oil that you sold. Despite the failure of the Just project. Despite the technical failure of the project. So th- a lot of projects back then were economic successes, okay, but not technical successes. That's interesting. So it, it, it's n- it was not something that was new at that time. Mm-hmm. It, it was, uh, and I think it goes back to the Texas Railroad Commission, if I remember correctly. <laughs> Did you remember, Con? What no, but I think that the that the impact was that well by seventy by seventy four people were waiting in line to get. Uh, gasoline and so the complete opposite of today. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, uh, there wasn't enough fuel around. It was difficult. You had to queue up basically, and that I think uh, stimulated the Nixon administration to really try and uh, stimulate, as Malcolm said, ways that we could domestically source more oil, okay. rather than. Our reliance uh, at that time was already growing on the Saudis. So the beginning of American oil field security, so to speak, or at least mm-hmm. the marketing behind it. Mm-hmm. Interesting. But y'all got started coming out of the embargo. You were seeing what was happening, the reduction as opposed to the glut. So what started happening in the 80s? Because, Khan, you were mentioning the Star Wars plan, the just a number of Malcolm things. Malcolm can talk uh, to that a little. That's <laughs> back in about 86. But the yeah. first thing that really happened was when, I guess you'd say, when all of the uh, tier pricing ended. Okay. And so, in, so we had a, a recession and so forth in 82. Mm-hmm. Um, demand dropped, the oil prices dropped, and Surtec was very, very concerned about it because I don't remember how far. Prices were up to about $100 mm-hmm. or 90-some dollars, and they cratered. I don't remember what it, they dropped to. Do you recall, Malcolm? Yeah, they got down to less than $10 a barrel like they are today. Okay. Did and they ever uh, go negative? They didn't go <laughs> negative, no. But, but I think that um, what our reaction was is that Surtec uh, had the roots in developing micellar type of formulations that yeah. came from you know, the roots at Marathon Oil, what we started realizing is that in order to be competitive, we had to reduce the cost of UR. And so that is what led us into looking more at how, you know, alkali reduces the consumption of surfactant, mm-hmm. which is already known. Uh, there was already quite a bit of work done, but a lot of the majors had already pulled out of the research. And so it was left up to somebody else to sort of step in and promote the ideas and then get projects to the field and so forth. So I think that, um, uh, you know, that's when we first started looking more at alkali. So around 86 or so, we had the, there was actually about a four-year lag. And, you know, 86, we saw something that's more parallel to the mass layoffs that we're seeing now. Okay. Um, As I recall, I remember numbers in the 600,000 job losses, but I know... For even Houston alone, uh, they reported over 220,000 job losses in just one city. Mm-hmm. So they could have been more than 600,000. But that, you know, besides oil pricing, that was a, a politically strategic move. In what way? Well, that gets into, okay, so the first was under the Nixon administration. This okay. is under Reagan administration now. As I remember, Malcolm <laughs> might remember this even differently or better, but um, the uh, this was during the height of the Cold War, well, part of the Cold War, and um, it was a uh, it was a move to try and get rid of the Soviet Union. Oh. So the this was a four or five pronged approach. Well, there's a book called Victory that discusses it, where they talk about the different uh, approaches. First four approaches were to get the Soviet unions to spend money. Star Wars, solidarity support in um, in Poland, uh, Mujahideen support in Afghanistan, and also uh, if you're at that time, <coughs> Soviet Union was going to sell a lot of gas to Europe, which they do, but they didn't have a pipeline. They were going to build a pipeline. They didn't have generators or, or compressors, excuse me, in order to be able to to um, move that gas efficiently through there. So the Reagan administration convinced GE to set up dummy 
blueprints and allow the Russian spies to steal them. And so then when they went to turn on their pipeline, their compressors didn't work. So okay. it was basically to drain the coffers. Well, it was. It was to, to get them to max out their credit card. Okay. okay. And then what they did at that time, Soviet Union was the largest oil producer in the world. And in order to cut off their income, they convinced Saudi Arabia to crash the price of crude oil. Huh. So this was – it's an interesting political uh, um, calculus there because you have – on one hand, you you have the political goal of demolishing the Soviet Union, which was successful in mm-hmm. the long run, but it cost a lot of jobs. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like we were trying to get them to purposely flood the market for the crash. We did. But that's, well, that's what's exactly happening now, except now – West Texas is the collateral damage, if not the purposeful damage. Right. Yeah, it's pretty interesting that the the economics on oil is balanced at such a fine point. It's the whole on-demand supply side kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Because remember, you know, the amount of production that came from unconventionals is 5% or so of the world production. Is that about right? 5 million barrels a day, maybe a little more than that? Yeah. A little more than that, but yeah. But so uh, that in itself, even as it was going up from 1 million to 2 million to 3 million, when it got to about 3 million, we're talking about a million barrels a day uh, difference Mm -hmm. as being what's tipped the price of oil from a high of $132 uh, in 2008 down uh, and crashing down and, and then flooding the market with basically enough to to exceed demand a little bit. And that that has kept the oil prices in the 50s, right, for, for quite a while. Which is a fair price if you think about mm-hmm. it. Everyone should have, unfortunately, I guess, everyone, uh, most have a break-even around 60. They probably <coughs> shouldn't. It should be lower than that. But conventional, I mean – their break-evens can get pretty pretty low in terms of development planning. Right. I think that 2014 was what happened then, right, when the, the that was another little crash there and the job market, uh, you know, we, we saw other people fleeing from the um, oil industry and, you know, the yeah. schools uh, started seeing fewer. But uh, even in the 90s, we had the Gulf Wars, which were arguably, well, maybe not arguably, but definitely over – stockpile supply it was the conventionals yeah uh i mean the gulf war arguably about supply i mean controlling supply yeah how's that right okay. <laughs> when but, but, but we had a downturn in that the late 90s that really took a lot of people out of the industry. that did too we, yeah again geopolitically driven so this is not our first oil war what are y'all seeing in terms of the oil industry, we tend to, as Khan put it, buy high and sell low, and we do, we do it backwards. Well, it depends on if you're actually making money in investments or not. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, the but traditionally, like the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, the, the, you know, below the salt domes type stuff where we inject into the salt domes down in the, in the Gulf area. Yes. Um, we traditionally inject crude oil when it's the highest price in there and then withdraw it when it's the lowest price which is just backwards, and that's Khan's point, is we are, we're doing it the wrong way. Can you all elaborate a bit more on that? Yeah, so I, I'll jump in. As far as investment opportunities, it's right now is the right time to be doing something, assuming you have access to capital, and that's what most people don't have right now. But the money's been circling for about five years. That's not been a secret by any stretch. Yeah, but what, what's also missing with, with the... So there is always money, right? There's always someone who has money and who's willing to make money by exploiting a, a downturn. Um, I think what's yes, really missing me. now. <laughs> I think what's missing now is more the technical know-how. And as we've moved away, so each time you know oil prices come come up, they go down. And I think the first hundred years we were able to kind of capture and secure a lot of the easy oil, the cheap mm-hmm. oil. And what we're left with now is you know even the unconventionals were not simple. It took a lot of horsepower. It took a lot of you know engineering ingenuity in order to be able to exploit that those reserves and now what we're seeing is a whole new opportunity window which is the enhanced oil recovery associated with those unconventionals 
as well as the enhanced oil recovery of conventional assets. But the problem that we're finding out is that there's very few companies out there who know anything about enhanced oil recovery. Well, to Malcolm's point, it was known in the, I guess, in the 80s as a way just to have an economic loophole. There wasn't, and even when I go out into the field, I get pushback. It doesn't work. How do I even know if my reservoir is a candidate? There's too much mm -hmm. input on surface, uh, surface facilities. So how do you all combat that? How do you actually take people back and say, look, Hope is not a plan. We already know that the way to controlling the oil field is by planning and strategic development, and that is why we have secondary and tertiary options. So you can't think of the oil field as IP90. But I think the answer to that is most engineers that you will talk to are very analytical, and they'll understand if you go through an explanation in, in a, a very rigorous manner that everything takes planning, everything takes you know, proper data analysis in making the right conclusions. Um, and that, especially when you talk about the tertiary incentives program mm -hmm. that, was, that made a mistake in, in how they allowed uh, prices to be increased to world pri or crude oil prices to be increased to world prices at that time. I think they understand that technically these things were not designed properly. You know, a few people have written uh, papers on that, Gene DeBonds at Texaco in particular on polymer floods. Um, and, and so I, I think if you rationally discuss with a, with a good engineer, they won't argue that, that done properly, they will, um, should be able to um, have a reasonably successful project. Yeah, I mean, the source of the, the EUR is tapping where you already know the most oil already exists. You know, you're not having to... Your KH map. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, you're going after where there's already oil. You don't have to find it. You just have to exploit it differently. And if you think of it that way, what you're doing is um, you have to sort of draft some, uh, some idea that is like a plan, like a reserve uh, replacement development. In other words... It's going to take a while. You're going to have to, as Malcolm said, you have to, de to develop the, te the technique. Um, you have to develop the particular technology that you're going to go after. I don't mean develop from scratch. I mean for your application. Okay. And plan and then implement. And the thing is the reason that uh, getting to your question and Elio's response earlier that this is the time is that it's going to be a few years before that oil that you start enhancing production of mm -hmm. will be produced because you have to develop an oil bank. And so uh, doing these things now allows time for, for that oil bank to develop and be produced in a year or two years or so when hopefully the oil prices are different than we're seeing at minus, minus $34 <laughs> or whatever it was. But <laughs> just one thing along those lines is, you know, I'm kind of linking some of our conversations earlier mm -hmm. to like the oil embargo. You know, we go through these cycles, and each cycle presents itself with new opportunities, mm -hmm. right? The first, you know, the oil embargo, what did we see? We saw EUR being invested by the Department of Energy and other technologies also. We got the scare of a lifetime with resor the lack of available resources, yeah. which prompted tertiary development planning and Tertiary, exploration. Yeah. There's, a, there's a lot of investment, on, a lot of great work done by engineers and geoscientists mm -hmm. in, in stepping up to the plate to address that, those concerns, those challenges. Right. What do Didn't we see? you call it the age of the geologist? That was th th my, that's what my dad taught me when I was younger. <laughs> I, I want to be a geologist. He's a geologist, and he told me, no, your time is the time of the engineer. you got to figure out how to get more oil out of the ground. Mm -hmm. And so uh, along those lines, if you think about the 86 downturn, what happened then? Well, all of a sudden, people cut their costs. Right? They started to yeah. see, how can I become Panic. better at what, what I'm doing? In the, 90s, we, that's in the late 80s and 90s is where we saw horizontal drilling really take off as far as the technology and the development of it. It wasn't until later on that we saw the implementation of it. Yeah. But the, of the smart people put their heads, you know, their thinking caps on, and they really kind of got down and, and, and figured stuff out. We saw gas prices go crazy in the late 90s, early 2000s. We saw a lot of companies going after gases. Um, a lot of great advancements in the multi-stage fracking industry for gas, right, up yeah. in the peons. And then what did we see? We saw, you know, oil prices coming up. What did we do? We linked technologies. We linked horizontal with fractures. And this became the age of the completion engineer and the driller. 
And yeah. those people did. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> and those people did a great job. Like my hat goes off to them. Congratulations. We have thousands of horizontal multi-stage fracked wellbores across the United States. They redefined our KPIs, the the yeah. measurements by which we judge who is doing well and who is failing. Exactly. And a lot of the young engineers have only seen unconventionals, right? Ding ding ding. And very few of them recognize that there was a whole industry <laughs> way before unconventionals which really kind of mastered a lot of these sciences and technologies associated with how oil is trapped. So that's the problem I'm running into now with everyone being laid off, and I'm talking like nightly, I am getting calls, but when I start speaking to people about development planning, how to enhance their skill set, I'm actually, because of the stuff that y'all have me going through, I am pushing people back to studying conventional reservoir management because I actually think that's what the the world and the tap are headed back towards. So yes, we'll always have the unconventionals, they're a great source, but having that technical skill set is for the conventionals, I think is crucial in this day and age. So to your point, Elio, and dragging y'all back to 1986, of which I was one year old, if at all, I, I'm kind of curious because like you said, we were in a glut then. So what was the reaction to enhanced recovery and development planning? Were people just fill up their stock tanks, hold, 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 find a place to put it. What was happening with SPR? Like, how, how were y'all reacting knowing that development planning was still the solution to the problem? Well, that 86 downturn resulted in a lot of enhanced oil recovery efforts really being uh, shelved. And the majors by that time, pretty much all of them except for perhaps Phillips, had gotten rid of their their major uh, or their research centers. Marathon was in that ballpark 86 or so when they shut theirs in in Denver here, which was good for Surtec because we picked up three technicians from Marathon. <laughs> but uh, Malcolm's <laughs> like we poached the hell out of people. <laughs> well, and, and School of Mines also got a lot of from, from yeah, Marathon that's also. True. They're that's still true. there, Elio. <laughs> yeah, they're still there. But. Uh, did, there was a big downturn in 86 where people were not interested in, uh, in enhanced re oil recovery. Um, there were a few people, and those that were were the smaller uh, or medium-sized independents, not the bigger uh, companies or the, the larger independents. Um, it was a massive brain drain. It, it was. And they then fled the industry, mm -hmm. and they never came back. A lot of people never came back. Well, right now there's nowhere for them to go, which is – Unique. Well, at that time, you had a lot of the engineers go into other engineering uh, uh, disciplines that required understanding of flow through porous media, like the environmental industry, where you had or, or organics uh, or uh, contaminant moving through alluvium. So, what you're saying is they went to the dark side. They went to the dark <laughs> side. So did we, by the way. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, uh, that's how we got through that 80, late 80s period. Right. Well, we Elio, you didn't say that. <laughs> yeah, we, we, actually, <laughs> we actually worked on uh, one of the most successful Superfund projects uh, in the United States. The Superfund was the CERCLA Act, you know, for cleanup of some of these um, industrial contaminations and so forth. And, and this was... Um, as a result, probably, of the, the, the wild stream fishing in Laramie, oh. where people started noticing that the fish downstream of a railroad tie treating plant had tasted terrible. <laughs> <laughs> it ruined y'all's weekend activity. <laughs> right. And so you get a bunch of wildlife people uh, uh, screaming and hollering, and apparently that led to the designation of this railroad tie treating plant as a Superfund site that we worked on. That, w that they forced to clean up, and we applied chemical enhanced oil recovery technology to remove this uh, creosote from the ground. I love our industry. We are so versatile. Everyone should worship us. I don't care what the media says. Well, it was that, and then we also did uh, a... Um, it was a extruder, extruder plant. Extruder plant, yeah, that for hydraulic oil that had gone into the ground. Yep. We also looked at removing jet fuel from underneath a runway. Right, March Air Force Base before yeah. they closed it down. That's super cool. Yeah. So now we are back to modern day. It's been kind of a hell of a time. Last week we saw, you know, prices go negative and 
I think everyone and their mother was holding their breath. Just because we are in a glut does not mean that the planning has to stop, does not mean that the, I guess, the KPIs are no longer important. And to Elio's point, there's still academia coming in and looking at unconventional enhanced recovery. But we still have a lot of assets in the United States that are arguably, you know, tight sands and down American conventionals that have Mm -hmm. a lot to offer. So how do we balance development and development planning with the current glut? Well, to be honest with you, as Con mentioned, uh, now's the best time to be planning it because it's going to take you a while to develop your oil bank and start to see a response. So if you do your development planning now and maybe even the chemicals, if we're talking chemical enhanced oil recovery, maybe your chemicals that you're injecting right now would be cheaper because they're linked to the price of crude oil since they're made from crude oil. So I like that you said that, but it seems to me that the only people that are actually listening to the enhanced recovery side are academics who, I'm sorry, but the reason y'all are sitting in this room is because you have more field implementations than anyone else in the entire world, and that's Mm -hmm. just a fact. The other side is that the government likes to get involved with these little tips and tricks. So what's what's drawing them? This isn't just a fun science experiment. There's practical application here. So what is what's the motivation? I th- I think um, from academia, one of the things is that they want to prove that th- we can recover all the oil. So uh, in terms of uh, at least in terms of conventional t- uh, types of of reservoirs for chemical enhanced oil recovery. It's possible to essentially recover all the oil. So academia is hell-bent on proving that rel perm curves are real? (laughs) 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 But they're not grounded so much in economics. And that is one thing that has been one of the foundations for uh, CERTEC is that that's why we, back in 82, completely revamped our, our strategies for chemical UR to make sure that it would be economic at the oil price environment that existed then. We, we've been doing that all along. Yeah, we no, can't I'm do it at minus $37. But <laughs> no one can do it at do minus. Oh, my God. I could afford oil at minus 37. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, no, I, I, I guess I consider myself as a industry spy and who infiltrated the academic world. I'm going to quote you on that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure probably a handful of people who know me probably would view that view it that way. But uh, I, I, would, I would kind of agree with what Khan had meant, what he just said about a lot of the academia, they don't understand economics. Correct. And, it's, and never, think, it's never a part of the project. I think the greatest experience I've had was when I, when I – so I worked a couple of years or a few years full-time at the university um, while also working here at CERTEC. And uh, – when I first started, you know, the universities, they give all these great benefits. And one of the first benefits they give was uh, a financial advisor was going to come help explain how you can survive off peanuts and hugs and kisses. And uh, so as I sat there, this guy's kind of, you know, I, I kind of did a whole portfolio. So I laid out my whole, all my financial situations, and I thought I was doing pretty good. And, uh, <laughs> and the guy agreed. He said, you know what, this, you're, he's like, you're one of the first people I've met at the university who actually I don't think I can give any advice to. I think you've got a, something pretty sound. He's like, it would shock you to know that one of the professors from one of the other departments where economics would be the, sh- the forte had no grasp on financial planning or economics. And as I've been and kind of spent more time at the, in the university, I would kind of agree with a so, lot of so individuals. So this guy outed one of our, yeah. one of your professors. Well, like yeah, he, he, he right called there. that one of the professors right there, which to me says if people don't understand economics for their own personal finance environment, they're not going to understand an operator's economics. They're not going to understand how money is made using oil mm-hmm. as, the, as, the, as the product. And oftentimes we see a lot of very smart people who are experts. And, and I'll, I'll never say anything disrespectful about their, about their skill set. You can. But, <laughs> here's the but, but they don't understand economics. Mm-hmm. They can't grasp that there's payroll to be made. They, they don't grasp how there's... Um, there's investors who expect a return on their money, right? And a lot of the ac- in, in the academia, a lot of people, they don't, they're not accountable for their actions, right? They're they're expected to further science, mm-hmm. and they do a great job in furthering science, but they don't, 
they're not accountable financially or economics to anyone. There's no kind of board of directors or there's no you know, manager or any investor there saying, okay, where's my return on my investment? In the lab, this works, so to speak. Exactly. They say, hey, I furthered science. And so this is kind of where Surtec, and I think with, with Harry, you know, Sir Kayla, who, who founded Surtec, really kind of had a, a, a solid foundation on we're here to make money, right? I think you know Malcolm has. I, I, you know, anyone who knows Malcolm, I think he's told him <laughs> we're here to make money. Let's no, not forget he, that. He said that a few times in Monday morning meetings. <laughs> <laughs> Mostly, uh, we're here to make our clients money. Money, too. yeah. And that's why we have Con. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, the other part that you brought up is what role can the government play into it? Exactly. These sort of things. And they, like the tertiary incentives program, the government can steer where money that the operator spends uh, goes. Does it go to planning for the future in some sort of enhanced recovery project, for example? While not the United States, Kuwait today is probably the major company or country that is looking at enhanced oil recovery. And that is because the, they've got this 2040 vision that the government has outlined for them that requires them to look at enhanced oil recovery. Well, the same thing can happen in the United States, too. So it can be through tax incentives, could be a variety of different ways. Um, but the governments can certainly steer where money is spent and, and how projects are planned. Well, one of the things I get pushed back on, and I've even pushed back to all three of y'all, is how is how do I even know if my reservoir is a candidate? Because I come from the unconventional world. I understand that language through and through. Nobody is looking at anything really past IP90. They throw a pump on it, and I'm asked to create type curves that go 50 years. But that, I mean, really, come on. Well, look back, it's... It's a little bit of a joke when we go back and actually do the comparables. And, of course, all models are wrong. Some are useful. But we do expect, you know, something to happen. The ROI, the time value of money, we expect that to happen based off of the models we're putting in. So how do you convince a small operator to start planning for that future? You know, it gets back into uh, you got to do your homework. you got to understand uh, your reservoir for one. First of all, you got to do the homework on your reservoir. You got to understand the various parameters. What, what uh, what's the size of your uh, reservoir? How much oil is there? What what is that oil target that you're going mm -hmm. after? Uh, what can I produce with water injection? What can I produce on primary? What can I produce if I apply a surfactant flood or something like that? And that takes homework. You have to understand one your reservoir, but you also have to understand what people have done with similar reservoirs and what technologies have worked. Well, you just listed off a handful of recovery options. Right. Most people think uh, chemical, CO2, that's everyone's big one. I've mm -hmm. even heard people come to me and say that water flooding is tertiary recovery. So <laughs> there, there seems to be a lack of knowledge about the possibilities, which is why, again, going back to development, no one's asking the questions. Yeah, but we, we have to keep in mind not only – so there are a couple of principles or points I would throw out there yes. to kind of address this item. The first one is the natural process of an oil field, right, or the, the, the life cycle of an oil field. And so historically what happens is you get some big company with a lot of money. They'll do – it'll invest heavily in geoscience, and they'll mm -hmm. identify a structure. They'll drill. They'll do some wildcat wells. They'll delineate the field. They'll do this whole development plan, right? It becomes a study almost. Life's great. There's billions of dollars spent. Like I had the fortunate opportunity to work with ExxonMobil's development company, which is exactly what they did. All these gigantic world-class assets came to a small group of people, and our job was to develop it. And mm -hmm. so what happens is you develop this amazing plan, and no one's ever developed anything that's not perfect. So they all pat themselves on the back. And then they produce, and when they feel like it's not making enough money for them, or they could sell it for more than they could, for, for more than the headaches that they would get from operating, they sell it to a to an independent company. Okay, so a mid-sized something. So a mid-sized company comes in, they say, "Well, I have lower overhead, so I can keep my costs down. I can make a little more money than the major." And all of a sudden, you get these guys run it for a few years, and then they say, "Well, okay, it's not my turn to hand it off." Mm -hmm. And each time they hand it off, what's happening is that they're handing it off to a less financially stable company <laughs> as well as a less technically competent company. So not always. Not, not always, but oftentimes if you look at a lot, of these, a lot of these conventional assets who they're currently owned by are companies that are 
can't even compete with the majors or any of the large independent companies. And so ultimately what you find out is when you – if you find yourself asking the question, is my field a candidate, you know, yes. If, if there's oil in the ground, there's, there, there's certainly some form of technology that your reservoir is a candidate for. Mm -hmm. Now, do you have the technical know-how to evaluate multiple technologies or are you going to be a one-trick pony because you read one book? Right? Are you going to say, oh, hey, look, I, I like CO2 because I saw CO2. You know, there's someone that talked about it. And CO2 does work, and CO2 is great, but CO2 is no more than the concept of miscibility. And you can achieve miscibility with hydrocarbon gas. You can achieve miscibility with nitrogen. You can achieve miscibility with flue gas. There's it's all certain, pressure. <laughs> there's, it's pressure. There's certain conditions that help you meet those needs. And so that, to me, is one of the first questions about – is my reservoir candidate? Is like okay, well, how comfortable are you with the principles that are, that enhanced oil recovery is founded on? Because miscibility, IFT reduction, you know, all of those things are, are 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 very they're all linked one to the other, and and that's what enhanced oil recovery is. And so it's it's important for people to understand that there's multiple technologies out there, and the other part of it is is recognizing that it costs money. Like you have to have some capital to invest in order to implement these projects in the ground. And oftentimes, if, if you're a mom-pa operator, mm -hmm. you might not have the, the pockets necessary to invest in it. So you're going to have to recognize, well, what is it going to cost for me to do this? And so it, at the end of the point, what I, what I want to make is it requires both techn technological know-how as well as the financial backing to do that. Mm -hmm. And right now, it's, you know, we, know there's oil, there's, we know there's money in, in the world. <laughs> there's people with the money what we need to do is we need to team them up with the people who know the technologies. I would agree so. We're definitely in a potential now that we're going to lose the technical skill sets yet again, and I don't think right. the oil field can. Right. I mean, there's the, we're probably going to lose some people. I mean, this downturn, there, we're seeing massive layoffs, um, and whether uh, when it comes back, not all of those people will want to come back to the same industry. So, are you sure this is so much fun? <laughs> well, well, it is fun, but also <laughs> if you if you look at the demographics of engineers, there's a big gap between that 45 or 50 that represented the downturn that occurred in the 80s and 90s, where people weren't getting educated as petroleum engineers, or they're going to other industries. Mm -hmm. So it's happened before. Yeah, so my group right now, I'm looking at there's a whole generation missing between myself and Con and Malcolm. Yes. Right? And then I've got my generation, and then the generation after me, they're being prevented from entering the industry because there's no jobs. That's so okay. I, I'm going to get mean, into no. this really lonely <laughs> environment with my friends who half of them, or more than half of them, have lost their jobs. And mm -hmm. we're, we're going to find a, a major gap with not only – the technological know-how, but just the physical presence of people in the oil and gas industry. So it's kind of scary when you think about it. But but the one uh, w with respect to um, how do various companies, how do they know? Well, there's a lot of things that they don't know to begin with. And they're always, they've in the past been willing to, to subcontract or contract that out. Mm -hmm. For instance, just even drilling, for instance. So well, EOR yeah, is the same thing. You, EOR is the same thing. You have to find somebody you can trust that you can talk to that will give you, you know, um, uh, reasonable judgment about, yes, that kind of technology might work there. You need this information to be able to de-risk that. Mm -hmm. uh, no, that technology doesn't make any sense. Um, so it's just uh, you're, all, you're going to have to go back and – to finding experts. I do think it's fun listening to you tear <laughs> models apart. You're always so nice, but you're, I love how you're like, well, no. <laughs> now, I, I want to highlight one point that Khan just mentioned, which is the whole trust aspect. It is, it's imperative, it's crucial in any relationship that people trust the consultants or the friends that are, you know, the, the friends that are dealing with as far as trying to identify enhanced oil recovery. An example I had, I was working with a company in uh, in Europe, and this company, they had their own agenda, which was one of them, they wanted to use their own surfactants. They mm -hmm. manufactured surfactants, and that was part of them doing a chemical flood development was being able to prove that they can use their own surfactants and being able to implement it in a field and, and make money. They reached out to a set of consultants 
who kept pushing a certain surfactant product. And, and they said, Did they well, have tie-in on the back end? Well, that's exactly what it was. At the end, the, 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 the lead engineer who was part of it got fed up with this company because they would, every time they would talk, said, oh, yeah, you don't want to use this. You want to use this surfactant. And at the end, he said, he asked point blank to this individual, he says, do you own any royalties in this surfactant that you keep pushing on us? <laughs> and the person answered, yes, but that's not the point. And it's like, no, no, that's exactly that's what the point That's 100% the point. <laughs> and, that's, and that is in everything you do in enhanced oil recovery is you have to be aware of biases. Okay. And I, I'll, you know, there's, if, if there's a chemical manufacturer out there, guess what? They want to sell their chemicals. And they want to sell at the highest concentration possible. And that's no secret. And there shouldn't be a secret, right? Everyone knows that's how they make their money, so that's what they're going to push. At Certec, one of the things that I'd like to emphasize is that we have biases too, <laughs> But our bias is not, because we don't sell any chemicals. We don't sell this other stuff. Our bias is that their project succeeds. Because for us, if they don't succeed and we're part of it, it looks bad on us. Considering y'all's level of field implementations, you really don't have a choice. Right. We <laughs> like repeat customers. Exactly. Yeah, we need repeat customers. Everything else is a great paper and maybe one or two. But mm -hmm. when you actually have to put, you know, the shovel in the ground, you need it to work. <laughs> and, and that's what operators need to recognize. And, and just as Con mentioned, they have to trust people. Mm -hmm. Right. And there's plenty of people out there that are trustworthy. There's great people throughout the industry. There's great professors, there's, there's, there's so many good people, but there's also individuals who do carry their own bias. Mm -hmm. And it's important that people identify who's who and calls them out and, and just recognizes what they're dealing with. So guys, why invest now? Why, why should people be looking at enhanced recovery now or considering that option? We are in a glut. There is a weird coronavirus, COVID-19, that's reduced demand. I know y'all had experience in the 80s and what came out of it, and you saw projects shelved for one reason or another, but this is a completely different, you know, pony, so to speak. We, we need a different plan moving forward. The oil field needs to pivot, and we've known that for a few years now. So what's the development plan? Well, I think the answer to that question, why do it now? Because if you've got a reservoir that you're operating, you need to do your best to uh, – operate to the best skills that you have. What does that mean? In other words, if that means that you need to operate the, the pumps in the optimum manner, keep them in, in good uh, operating uh, manner. That means you need to have a clean, you know, clean out your heater treater. That means you need to develop your field properly. And in, in order to develop your field properly, maybe that'll include enhanced oil recovery. Maybe it won't. That gets into how do you you know, what's best for that property. But you still need to operate to the best of your ability. That's sort of a stitch in time kind of uh, statement in that if you let things fall apart, you don't have an option to do anything later on. That's correct. Well, isn't that what's happening with unconventionals? I mean, y'all speak about the field. Mm -hmm. In unconventionals, it's about the well. Yeah, well, so right now, that's the concern, right? So every well, so every un unconventional well that came on gangbusters years ago, right, who's completely depleted the, the little, the, the, or the, not little, the big fracture that they created in the drainage area, they have two options right now. I can either plug and abandon, which is going to cost them a couple hundred thousand dollars, right? These horizontal so wells are not cheap to plug and abandon. So no development plan, just death. Yeah, so that, that's always an option, right? Just throw in the towel, say I'm done. It's going to come at a hefty cost. Yeah. Or you could have the other option, which is let me try to apply reservoir engineering to it. Let me see, can I try to get more of the oil out of the ground? Because these, unco these unconventional wells, 5 10% recovery, 10 at the highest. No, two. No, no, but I'm saying as far as – they have very low recoveries mm -hmm. compared to anything else that we've ever dealt with. Correct. And we've never allowed a reservoir engineer to look at the data. We have moved so fast in our drilling that we have just used the, the whole data analytics movement, right? The statisticians, the computer scientists guys, we've allowed them to kind of gather data, but no one's ever evaluated it. We drilled so fast that that's one of the complaints that I've heard time and time again is, 
yeah, we just gather data, but we don't have time to analyze it, to evaluate it. Well, there is a movement now to have more of a subsurface analysis happening in unconventionals, but very rarely are, is that subsurface analysis, you know, to the point of production to sand face, actually considering the tertiary option. Yeah, and well, we can't pump it, down water there, you know, that, clays and swelling the, clays. And that's the point right now that I would like to make is, you know, 15 years ago when oil prices came up, right, um, all of a sudden it opened up a bunch of opportunities. And those opportunities were typically linked with drilling and completions. Mm -hmm. When we got the unconventional boom in, you know, around 2010, um, what did we get? We had a real opportunity for all the drillers and completions engineers. Where we are now with this big downturn is we're at finally an opportunity where I would claim is the time for the reservoir engineer to step up to the plate. The to go back is to being an engineer? Go back to being an engineer, understand flow through porous media, and I guess maybe not so much porous media. <laughs> but the truth is that's the risk right now is there's very few of these individuals left in the industry, right? We're losing a lot of them to retirement. We've mandatory retirement. Mandatory retirement. Mm -hmm. We're finding a lot of the students in the academic institutes don't have a clue what rel perm curves are. Well, they don't you know, work. They, they, yeah, all they know they, they don't work. I maintain work. <laughs> my original statement. <laughs> but they don't understand the fundamental aspects of reservoir engineering. Mm -hmm. And to me, for the development plan, it always has to be linked to a reservoir engineer's job because that's what they do. They come up with development plans on reservoir how to. Reservoir is where uncertainty ends. Or is meant to. Well, that, we're also, f you know, covered in uncertainty. But it's the time where you can either try to, to implement EUR to get more oil out of the ground. And there's a huge target in order to, you know, there's a huge target of oil to get out. Or you can plug and abandon. Those are your two options right now. Well, do you think there's a, a, uh, a change in philosophy that you have to get from going to apply EUR to unconventional Unconventional is more about that well bore and what that one well can do. Yeah. Whereas EOR for conventional is you're trying to maximize amount from the oil field, not that one individual well. Yeah, yeah I told Catherine earlier that the difference <laughs> is that um, in, in uh, unconventional, and actually in any kind of development that relies on the drill bit, every well that comes in good is, is a thrill. Mm -hmm. And so my description well, was that we you have the honeymoon, right? That's <laughs> a, but you are IP is really is the, the honeymoon period <laughs> because the marriage is when you have to, uh, you know, uh, look at a long term uh, relationship with your reservoir. Mm -hmm. You have to figure out how you're going to maintain the production from that. With uh, unconventional, you don't. You yeah. just move on to the next wife. <laughs> <laughs> But, but I would argue that, yes, the industry does have to change its mindset. Yeah. You have to look at things differently. But even then, the principles of enhanced oil recovery for conventionals are still valid for unconventionals. Now, figuring out what is our communication between wells, is there a conventional marriage where you have a um, – where you have an injector production pr producer pair, or are you trying to do everything with a single well bore? Mm -hmm. and, and once again, um, what we, the, no one's cracked the nut. There's plenty of companies. EOG is one, I think, viewed as one of the front runners as far as the world of EUR for unconventionals, and they're struggling with oil prices, <laughs> as, as many companies are. But it's really the time where we need to start thinking, <laughs> you know, put our thinking cap on and see how can we make money in this current environment. Because if we can figure out how to make money at $5, $10 a barrel, mm -hmm. guess what happens when we're back at $50? We're mm -hmm. making a lot more money. But this is the Catherine time when gets we have a to bigger figure that paycheck. out. <laughs> 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 no, but to your point, Elio, hope is not a development plan. We can't just ignore. We have to consider, you know, past IP90, and we have to consider other conventionals, I mean, other conventional assets. So that being the case, with everything that's going on, everything that happened last week, negative, um, how, where, what's going to change in the world? What's going to change on the geopolitical scale? How is demand going to react? Are we ever going to reach 100 million barrels a, a, a day again, or are we going to have to build up to it slowly? So what is the new face of the oil field? <laughs> <laughs> That's a difficult question. That's why I'm the moderator. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, you know, geopolitically, you know, something could happen tomorrow that 
changes things completely. It does. It has all the time now. And, uh, uh, you know, relative to uh, historically, we haven't seen a real rapid increase in price from these downturns. It's taken a while. But we see such quick falls. Yeah. <laughs> Same thing happens in the stock market, too. Wait, what are you talking about? We went from, uh, there's about $40 swinging oil pricing from negative 40 to zero. I know. It was, it was about 90% upswing the other day, right? <laughs> yeah. But uh, so recoveries usually take a lot longer than it does to, um, to see a fall. So we're probably in for uh, a difficult time in the future to, to, uh, for the oil industry. They're probably not going to. Um, see a big turnaround here real quickly. And I think part of that, too, you brought up the COVID uh, uh, problem. And uh, that's going to keep demand down. You know, people in, throughout the world are not going out, and they're not going to go out immediately just because somebody says, well, let's, let's go out and we need to revive the economy again. It, it's just not going to happen. People are scared. Right. And I, I think another thing is that the industry uh, has focused so much on the quarterly return. And I think it's going to be uh, it's going to take a visionary who's going to make a lot of money, who's thinking, what what can I do to position myself if, in five years? So a new face of an oil company, a new yes. KPI. Interesting. Yeah. So it's going to require us to be patient, find patient capital. Mm hmm. Um, the other thing that's going to require us to do is to adjust our works, our work environment. You know, the one thing that with this COVID-19, uh, the concern is, are, are, you, are we still going to have people locked in cubicles? Or we have people in offices where they share offices or have big company forums where everyone's gathered together in an auditorium? Oh, like a town hall? Like a town hall. Mm -hmm. And the honest truth is, I, I don't see that. I see a lot of the work standards or the standard of how we conduct business are changing, right? We're going to be finding that we can perhaps reduce costs mm -hmm. by working remotely or having smaller workspaces where people are a little bit more isolated. Uh, I also believe that we'll be able to, or we're going to have to be more realistic on our paychecks, right? I remember, so in 1998, one of my friends, had, who I, I spoke to him early 2000s, just as oil prices were, were, were climbing up, because that's when I, I entered the oil industry, you know, 2005, when oil prices were um, climbing, right? So 2004, they started climbing. I was in college, and life was great. And I'm giving him the <laughs> evil eye, just so you all know. Yeah, you were on the other side. I was coming back really down. bad choice. <laughs> but one of the guys I worked with, uh, he was telling me that he gra when he graduated in 98, and this is one of the downturns that Malcolm mentioned earlier, uh, it was about $20,000 the starting salary. That's like a normal business degree I, salary. Exactly. I remember being at, at, at Exxon, you can't and live in Denver on that salary, but... <laughs> yeah, no, but, but, but that individual did, actually. <laughs> but I remember being part of the recruiting team at Exxon when starting salaries for someone with zero experience but a good GPA was, you know, $100,000. Yeah. They were getting bonuses. They were getting bonuses. Yeah, in, in, to pay off your student loans. Yeah. I miss that. Can we talk about that? <laughs> for me, it was great. I got great raises, like, every six months and adjustments <laughs> to pay just to, to kind of keep up with it. So life was really, fabulous. Really, really happy but for if you. But <laughs> if you look at most oil executives right now, they're being paid for an industry that has a barrel of oil being sold at $100. They are being paid if their companies go under. The cash outs and the golden parachutes right now are Why unbelievable. Oh, that was drama. <laughs> but I, I would say that there has to be a lot of changes and kind of mature discussions, mm -hmm. which is resetting what normal is. And if it, part of it's going to be changing the work environment to cut cost. Another one's going to be changing salaries to be paid for what your product is worth. And right now, oil isn't worth that much. And, yeah, you know, we see these upswings and we'll get paid more, and that's where we make our money. But we have to have a mentality to cut costs, mm -hmm. right? And typically um, it, it's going to get difficult, it's going to get tricky, but it's a whole new, you know, it's a, we're starting new. It's, it's a reset button that we need to push. This is not our first oil war. It will not be our last. And right now we're seeing OPEC or OPEC plus, whatever the hell that means, saying that they are going to cut by X amount of barrels. I'm not seeing any operators throughout the United States saying what they're going to cut back. You know, shutting in, while it sounds feasible and a rational decision, is not an automatic decision. So, you know, 
this is going to happen again. How do we plan? How do I mean? How do we control global conventional production? Well, this one's a little different uh, world war than I think we've had in the past, in that this one is really generated out of a, a um, shall we say, a medical issue that has dampened the entire economy of the world and therefore reduced demand. And then we did get, you know, a couple people trying to, uh, are fighting over the volume that they produce, in particular the Saudis dropping it. Uh, but, but a lot of what is, we're really suffering through, I think, is due to demand going down in the world, not just the Saudis uh, trying to drop the price. Well, I'd say global production, not just conventional. And I think it's going to be the, the things that cost the most are going to get shut in. People are just going to have to They're walk away. They're just going to deal they with the settlement, all of it? And that's going to drop. You know, we're talking at uh, – I don't think we're, we're seeing, what, 20 million barrels a day over production or something like that now. That's a huge volume. That's 20% or so of the production, the world production. And we're really relying on and Russia. And we're still producing it. Are we really relying on Russia to be the, the saving grace that cuts that back? No, but I think that the economics are going to drive it. And the problem is that it's going to drive it down at the costs that, uh, you know, that we have. Um, uh, I, I think there will be an overreaction. These places, these companies are going to shut fields in. They're going to wind back. All of these ducks are never going to be completed, et cetera, et cetera, because that's going to be too costly. And so there will be a bounce back on oil price eventually. Well, market-driven forces will take care of it. Yeah. Like war? Or war or the virus has dropped the market. That's war. You know, that's and that, we're not expected that to last forever. You know, so. so, but this all goes back to y'all's earlier points is development, it still has to be a plan on that. So because the most expensive and the, the least amount of life is going to be what needs to shut in first, doesn't mean it can open up first. So you have to understand how to support your long-term marriage, your steady, your conventional field development. And that's what Enhanced Recovery provides to people. Yeah, but you have to keep in mind that there, you know, you have the operators and the service companies. The service companies take really the the, the main impact for for the current oil price environment because there's less field services being done. So you see Halliburton, Schlumberger, mm-hmm. all these big uh, service companies. They're the ones going to do mass layoffs because they go period by period, right? So they look at their cash well, they think shut in means DNC activities, not production. Yeah. Whereas for the operators, and this is really where it gets important, is that the operators are the stewards of that asset Mm -hmm. and this is the time you develop your plan yeah right and so it says okay the world's changed coronavirus is now part of it we've got lower demand we still have these assets we have to do something with them and if there's nothing to do we must plug and abandon them in the right way Mm -hmm. right and this is where we need to start looking and being creative as far as other forms of revenue because once again i i I, you know I've, I've, i've always been a fan of the um, of CO2 and the carbon credit side of things. But once again, it's there's expensive and it comes from California. It's, and I wouldn't rely on California right now in the middle of the, of the COVID-19 uh, problems. But if we can start finding solutions where we can kind of pair up technologies, right, where we're flooded with, you know, if, 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 we, if, we, if we can find ways to use these oil reservoirs that are great geologic traps, to put things that we don't want or things that we do want in there, um, that's a way that we can include that in our development plan. And so my point is simply to say the reservoir engineers, so the guys who are in charge of that development of that asset, be it a well, be it a field, be it multiple wells or patterns, this is a time where they have to look out and lay everything on the table and say, what is my path that can have the greatest economic success for my company while being as socially responsible as possible. And that is something that I think very few companies have actually done. They have, yeah. Well, another part about that, when the price of crude is high, and you can be a sloppy operator, it doesn't make any difference. You're still making money. But when the price of crude is down, you've got to plan and you've got to really think through what you're doing in order to continue to make money and continue to be an operator. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Well, guys, thank you so much for taking the time. This was very interesting. I enjoyed hearing about the oil wars. I think it's important that we take lessons from the past and apply them to now, and I think that primary lesson is hope is not a plan, and development is a requirement for the oil field. So, I mean, again, thank you for taking the time. Thanks for spreading some acumen and giving your insights, and it'll be interesting to see what the next couple of weeks, months, and years bring for the new face of the uh, oil patch. Thank you for having us.